Open your cerebral cortex and shift your lobes into upper beta phase because you are going to have Bitcoin knowledge transmitted directly into your vestibulocochlear. Your host of Bitcoin Knowledge is Trace Mayer, an early Bitcoin advocate since it cost a quarter, but this is not intended to be investment advice. A doctor of jurisprudence, but this is definitely not legal advice. And an investor in core cryptocurrency infrastructure, including Armory, BitPay, Kraken, and Nitagio, but this is not a recommendation of those services. Here, you get fed via direct mind download with pure and free Bitcoin knowledge. Welcome back to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast. Uh, we have an excellent interview today. We have the legendary Andreas Antonopoulos. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks, Trace. Really a pleasure to be here. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, we, we were just chatting before the podcast about how there are no coins in Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. You know, like, you're the author of Mastering Bitcoin, really had a lot to say on the topic. And when I was talking with Adam Back, he also made kind of this statement that the more you dig into Bitcoin, the more you learn that you didn't really fully understand it to begin with. That's correct. And yep. so no coins in Bitcoin? Like maybe you can help, uh, help, help us understand this a little bit more. Yeah, uh, so it, it, it is really true. That I've been in the space now uh, full-time for three years, more or less involved for just over four years. And I'm still learning something surprising and something new all the time that changes my perspective on some aspects of Bitcoin. But it, during the first year of researching Bitcoin, I came to understand there are no coins. The fundamental unit in Bitcoin is a transaction. And what a transaction does is it consumes... Uh, the output of a previous transaction and creates a new output with perhaps a new owner. And there is value and amount, but there isn't an actual coin in any form. The coins, the coins themselves are not stored. They're implied. They're implied in the transactions. And just as they're implied in the transaction as inputs and outputs of the transaction, you realize suddenly that there are no coins in Bitcoin. In fact, one of the things I've done a whole presentation on is how a lot of the terms we use in Bitcoin are horribly misleading. The, the very word Bitcoin itself is probably the worst name we could have picked for this. <laughs> so, you know, when we're, when we're talking about this, does it just hearken to the sheer complexity that we're dealing with? You know, our ability to abstract on top of something right. in order to kind of understand it. I mean, is, is that what we're trying to really grapple with is we're dealing with just such a complex thing that it, to bring it down and make it understandable when we've done such a large amount of abstraction? I mean, it, it it's not so much it? it's not so much that it's complex. It's that it is discontinuous with our pre- previous experience. It's a form of money that is at a much higher level of abstraction in terms of it, it, it's it's the least physical form of money we've ever created. That challenges us because a lot of what we experience with money is very physical. So when you create a form of money that is the least physical form of money that's ever existed, explaining it is hard because it's not, you can't rely on the previous experience because the previous experience was too physical. And the the word Bitcoin contains the word coin and a coin is the most physical money that has ever existed, and Bitcoin is the least physical money that's ever existed. So 
Part of the problem is simply that as an abstraction of money, it's, it's fundamentally different from what we had before to a point where it requires more explanation. The other problem is that a lot of these terms were picked by engineers and they, they don't have the design sensibility that, that comes from saying that a, a metaphor is useful if it creates an expectation of experience that is validated by the actual experience. Meaning that mm -hmm. if you have a metaphor of a desktop and a computer, then it should behave as a desktop. And then the metaphor is useful because it creates the expectation of how it's going to behave. And then it actually behaves that way. So it helps you understand better. A lot of the things we have in Bitcoin as metaphors break that rule. For example, a wallet doesn't actually contain any money in it. Because in Bitcoin, what we call a wallet is a keychain that contains keys. It would be much better if we called it a keychain. Because if I say, can you make a copy of your keychain, that creates an expectation of experience. I know to go to the store where they cut copies of all of my keys and I can make a copy of my keychain. So if I say make a copy of your keychain for backup, you understand what I mean because the metaphor fits your experience. If I say make a backup copy of your wallet, the metaphor breaks because you, you can't conceive of that because you don't make copies of wallets, right? So the problem is the word wallet creates an expectation and then that expectation is dashed. The same thing if you call it a balance or an address or an account in Bitcoin, all of which don't really fit the behavior of the system. And so then if you call it an account, you expect it to behave like an account, but you don't have change in an account, whereas you do have change in Bitcoin. So again, the metaphor breaks. In that case, it's simply a matter of picking metaphors that are better at creating the correct expectations. Yeah, I think this is very interesting, you know, because I pretty much wrote like a big chunk of the FAQ on Bitcoin.org. Mm -hmm. uh, and I encountered significant resistance when I wanted to talk about private keys, mm -hmm. you know, because they didn't want to complexify it too much. Right. And then, uh, you know, because you've got a private key and a wallet is really a collection of private keys. And... Uh, but when you say keychain, well, now we've got these hierarchically deterministic wallets. And so we actually have a chain, a de hierarchically deterministic chain of the private keys. So right. it, 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 it gets kind of interesting in this. And we've got a lot of, uh, you could say, headbutting between different, <laughs> different ways that people want to present or market everything. But, but that's normal. I mean, this happens with every new technology. And what happens is at first the experience of the new technology is related back to a previous experience, even though it's not a very good fit. Uh, one of the techniques used in design to do that is called skeuomorphic design, which means to incorporate non-functional elements of the previous experience so that you can become more comfortable with the change. That's a bit like putting Roman columns outside a steel frame building that doesn't need columns to hold it up, but you put them there so that people feel comfortable with it. Or, you know, if, if for a very American metaphor, if you like, uh, if you get a, a bottle of maple syrup, it has a little glass loop that you're supposed to put your finger through uh, because it used to be sold in these alcohol containers that had a finger so that you could lift it up and drink from it, right? But that little loop, you can't actually fit your finger in. So it doesn't work for its intended purpose anymore. It's just a metaphor, right? This happens. Cars were called horseless carriages, right? The, the, the radio was, was called the wireless. 
at first, right? It, it, we we talk about you know even television was was described as a picture radio at first, and then gradually the terminology adapts. As new generations are now comfortable with how the thing works, they give it a name that means that thing. So the horseless carriage became the automobile once enough people had used something and no longer remembered using the horses, right? Yeah. <laughs> We're going to see that happen in Bitcoin, the terminology that's going to develop around this. And we saw it with the internet too. The understanding of, of electronic mail and the information superhighway, a term used to relate the experience of a multi-lane traffic management system to normal people was used only for a brief period of time and now we call it the internet and you don't need to call it the information superhighway because everybody knows what the internet is. Now we call other things like we call Bitcoin the internet of money by referring it (laughs) to the internet internet because now that's established and soon we're going to be comparing other things to Bitcoin because people will now understand how it works. So it's just a matter of time. Yeah, isn't it interesting how every industry has kind of got its its uh, its own words, its own vocabulary, all of these aspects to it. You know, a couple of our a couple of the previous uh, guests that I've had on the podcast. In fact, one of them just recent was uh, Jeff Garzik, and we were talking about the importance of community and sticking together as a community. In fact, I think I think that's how you originally got started talking about. <laughs> Uh, Bitcoin so much publicly was, I guess I kind of stirred up a little bit of controversy and Jeff and uh, Greg Maxwell <laughs> disagreed with me and somehow you got involved in it too. And next thing you know, like you're, uh, you're, you're a big spokesperson for Bitcoin. How important do you think it is to, uh, to be involved in that sense, to have a voice in the community, to be, to be interacting with everybody, to to having the, the arguments being heard. For me personally? Yeah, or just for, you, in for you personally and in general for the community as a whole. Like, I mean, is I, it helpful? Do we want to have, do we want to have the, the, the arguments taking out, taking place out in the public or should yeah, we, we be do. keeping them behind closed doors where it's a little, won't hurt necessarily hurt the Bitcoin price because everybody's like, oh, massive division. I mean, maybe you can speak a little bit to like your feelings on these, these overall topics. Personally, I, I love Bitcoin. And my skills are in public speaking and explaining concepts in simple terms. So that's where I've decided to apply myself. And it's been successful, and I'm going to continue doing it for as long as it's worthwhile. I'll still be in Bitcoin. I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm going to be involved in Bitcoin for as long as there's Bitcoin. But um, you know, the thing that you see here is the difference between a decentralized, organically driven community open source project and what we're used to around institutional money, which is hierarchical, institutional, dogmatic systems. And in those systems, you only hear the final decision. You don't see the meetings. You don't see the disagreements. You only see the final outcome. You don't see how the sausage is made. And those boardrooms can get pretty heated. (laughs) Right. But but all of that is hidden from view. Uh What's also hidden from view or hidden is the possibility of... Uh, debate, the possibility of participation, the possibility of diversity of opinion, the possibility of enfranchisement of the people who are part of the community. <laughs> so if you want to have a nice clean environment, you just absolutely, you cut out all of the uh, discussion, you uh, throw democracy in the bin, and you elect one benevolent leader, hope 
that they are in fact a benevolent leader and you ask them what to do next. And it's much cleaner. There's no arguments at all, but it's no longer free. And so free as in freedom. And so the reason it's, it's important to see the process of the sausage making is because it allows everyone to be involved in that. It enfranchises the community and makes them participants in the decision making. And in some cases that leads to stalemate and it leads to inaction. And in any case, efficiency isn't the most important thing because very, very often efficiency is a compromise against freedom. So I would rather have an inefficient system that's free than a system that's brutally efficient at uh, suppressing the freedoms of everybody. Yeah, and, and if we stay together, like you two have stayed together, and they made all types of money. You know, if we stay together and, and try to have this consensus, you know, what, what you're saying is even if we make the sausage out in public and it can get ugly at times, like if we... You make keep, a better sausage. We make a better sausage. Absolutely. We keep it professional. Listen, everybody you know, has to wear their hairnets if they're making a sausage out in public, <laughs> right? Everybody has to wash their hands every time they touch the trash compactor. I mean, this is the whole point. This is why restaurants do their cooking in in, in the view, kitchen. In view, in view of the customers. I like eating at restaurants where I can watch them preparing uh-huh. my food. You know why? Because it changes the behavior. Um, yeah, it does. And it? so this, our community is participatory. It is open. Uh, that is the greatest strength of this community and the fact that it makes people who are used to authoritarian, clean decisions uncomfortable, I, I don't mind that. Well, so, you know, taking the other side of the argument, we've seen that the Department of Defense has had in the Air Force, they've both had budgets for basically trolling on the Internet, mm-hmm. for disrupting communities, fracturing and being very divisive, uh, you know, think. Right. In the UK, also in the UK, yeah, MI6 has done some stuff. So you know, Thamos has caught a lot of crap for uh, censoring some of the block size debate on Reddit. (laughs) But how do we draw the line between effective moderation, where we where we oh, it's very we aren't giving the time and attention to all these trolls. Oh, it's it's very it's very simple. Uh, It's a fundamental aspect of of free speech is is to be able to differentiate between content and tone, right? Moderation should always be about tone, not content. You on on places like Reddit, etc. If someone is is trolling, if the tone is not conducive to a to a conversation, regardless of the opinion, that's trolling. If you're starting to make decisions to suppress certain opinions based not on the tone of the conversation, but on the content of the conversation, you're doing content-based censorship. You're saying, okay, these types of protocols can be discussed. These types of protocols can't be discussed. Whether they're being discussed politely, whether they're being discussed with fact-based analysis, statistics and science, or they're being discussed with you know, just people screaming at each other, then you're not doing moderation. Moderation is moderating the tone. When you start messing with making decisions about which content is right and which content is wrong, that is censorship without a question. And what Famous is doing on our Bitcoin is out and out censorship. He's not saying if you if you speak disrespectfully, if you attack the person with that homonym, whether you're supporting big blocks or small blocks, you're going to get your post declined. But if you speak respectfully and provide data for your opinion, whether you're for big blocks or small blocks, your opinion will be heard because a healthy debate is is valuable. That's moderation. This is not moderation. It's outright censorship. Famous has decided what is right. 
And everything that is not what Thamos thinks is right is no longer allowed on those forums. And I'm not saying that other forums are better because you see the exact <laughs> opposite approach in some of the other forums. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you get and a lot of sig- a lot of noise, all not this, necessarily signal. Yes, but basically, instead of tamping down on the noise, they're picking between good signals and bad signals, mm-hmm. and that's censorship. That's not moderation. I, I, and and the trolls are still there because they haven't changed the way they moderate for tone. And so I will still get threatened and harassed when I am on these forums. And those trolls get to speak whatever they want. But people who have established themselves in community who have made enormous contributions and who are debating the topic with facts behind them are not getting to speak because Thamos, one person, disagrees with that opinion. With the content and not the tone. With the content, not the tone. That is wrong. Uh, and it's not wrong because Thamos is doing it. It's what? it's wrong no matter who does it and whether they do it for or against small blocks or for and against large blocks. What it does is it robs us of the opportunity of a healthy debate. Or, or whatever the topic is. Whatever like, the topic. I mean, because, you know, what the, whatever the, the, topic. the issue I brought up that kind of spurred you into talking very publicly in the first place, you know, because they wanted to... I think it, it was an issue involving uh, Roger Ver and uh, John Matonis and so... And not basically hearing them you know so yes I, I but mean, we had so, a healthy debate on that and in the end we actually came up with some good yeah, very solutions good that improved solutions and it improved that improved the community I and, mean, and that's really what we're talking about like sunlight's the best disinfectant right is, is your argument is you know the answer to speech is more speech that's the classic lewis brandes quote it's one of my favorites the answer to bad speech is more speech and if you don't like what someone is saying, you persuade them and the audience otherwise. Now, you can put some limits on tone. You have to speak to the substance of the issue and not attack the other speaker, right? Because, again, that's a matter of sunshine and, and, and healthy debate. If you're simply harassing the other speaker without adding anything to the conversation, then you're not interested in the debate. You're interested in silencing the other person with harassment. And, and, and that's antithetical to speech, too. But... You know, and, and, and it's very difficult to do that. It's very difficult to strike the right balance. When, when is an opinion slightly hyperbolic? When does, you know, people get into heated discussions? You might say the wrong thing. You might. Well, it's easy to. Yeah, like, it's, it's easy to get upset and misunderstand, on a, you know, on a but. Written post. And you can, you can make many decisions as to, as to where you draw the line on tone. But this isn't about tone. This is about this is the right way and this is the wrong way and Thamos decides. And I didn't vote for Thamos. Well, I guess we vote by going to the the subreddit if we even go to it at all. Well, so I, I haven't uh, posted in that subreddit since June of 2015. Uh, oh, wow. I don't read it. Uh, it's a well-known public uh, position and I do it because it no longer supports open and healthy debate. And that doesn't mean that there are many better forms for doing that but essentially we've but, we've lost as a community a great deal of our ability to have this debate and i think the scaling debate itself has lost as a whole and been delayed because of the lack of oh, opportunity to discuss it yeah. so so now instead of this issue being resolved three or four months ago by compromise through a healthy debate by shutting down the debate and having to focus it on a couple of conferences where both sides get invited for example now this has dragged on a, a lot longer and it's hurt the community even more yeah it's uh what Gandhi say, be the change you want to see. And I think that's exactly what you did last time we had a big public brouhaha. That's when you started the, the Bitcoin Press Center and you, you built the very tool that, 
that you wanted to see out there. So, right. I mean, that's one way we can handle it. We could just build a new forum. Yes. But which, I guess... Arguably, is what Gavin and Mike did. With... Uh, Bitcoin XT. Yeah. They built a tool they wanted to see and challenged people to make a choice. And I don't agree with that, necessarily. Uh, I don't disagree with it, either. There's a difference between being right and using the right tactics, right? You, uh-huh. can, you can be right and then use the wrong tactics. <laughs> So I'm, I'm not. Nece- I don't necessarily think that that was the right choice at the time, but but at the same time, I think the the reaction to that, which is to completely shut down debate in one of the most important forums, robbed the community of an important resource, and 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 you know, highlighted a bigger problem. And the bigger problem is that having one person uh, in charge of two of the most popular forums in a situation where if you are new to this space and you just go on Reddit and search, you're going to end up there anyway. So it's not as if you can easily compete when the the word Bitcoin is already reserved for that one forum, right? It's not as easy to compete against that and draw away audience. So it's not really an open system where you can just let competition flourish. He's He's squatting on that one name Oh, but he was there first. He was you there know? first. I mean, it's right. It's and he of... was there first gives him the absolute right to moderate that forum. Does it give him the right to um, use censorship to impose his opinion on other people? I think that's where I draw the line and say, no, that was the wrong thing to do. And I, I hope we resolve Well, this. that's where you vote with your feet, right? Yes, but I'd rather not vote with my feet because the problem is that a lot of the new people coming into the space will still go to that forum first. That's not a very effective solution. Well, doesn't it just highlight it the importance of, of the network effects. It fragments the discussion into too many forms, and as a result, it weakens the ability of the community to reach consensus. I'm hoping that at some point, Themos has an opportunity to step back from this position and revise the moderation policies on that forum to really address outright harassment and not content. Well, it you know, but part, part of this other problem can be people, you know, we, we, we've got 82 keys on the keyboard and people just want to bang one key the whole time. You know, we, we need to be thinking about and discussing so many, so many things in Bitcoin. Right. I mean, yes. it's like, is, you know, how, how are we supposed to prioritize what should be talked about or discussed or what we should be allocating time and attention to? Because I mean, we've got what, like a hundred and something bips. I mean, so the question it can be is, a full time job just to read all the bips, let I, alone a understand the job I have. Uh, I have that full time <laughs> job. Uh, trust me. I mean, that is part of my job is reading, understanding, and explaining these things. But so, how do you prioritize what you what you, like? What's a what's a specific example? Like, how do you prioritize? It's really simple. You uh, you have to take the volunteerist approach, which is whose time are you prioritizing? Yours or somebody well, else's? Well, like, I can't prioritize, prioritize your what time. Gavin spends his time on. And, and that's the real issue here, which is that every one of the core developers or every one of the developers involved in the project chooses how they spend their time. Right. And you can't tell them how to spend their time. Well, and if you, want to, if you want something else to be a priority, then you spend your time to make it a priority, either by persuading others to code for that because you persuade them that it's a priority or by learning how to code and coding yourself. And that's not always possible. For, for most people. But I, th- I think it's 
I think there's a bit of a tendency here to treat the the developers as if they're employees of the community and they're not employees of the community. They're free agents. They get to choose to spend their time and we should be grateful for every minute they spend on any aspect of core. Yeah. Um, because at the end of the day, and this is the key insight, you have to assume good faith. Everyone who is in this and who has spent the last two to three years dedicating an enormous part of their time on this project for little or no compensation at the expense of their job and their family, they do it because they love Bitcoin. We're on the same fucking side. And you have to assume good faith. You can't say, well, they're doing it because they're actually a secret CIA agent and want to destroy Bitcoin. Have to assume good faith. If you start from a position of assuming good faith and saying, listen, these people have made enormous sacrifices to, to build this code that we're all participating in, you know, say thank you first and, and then suggest what your priorities would be and find ways to help instead of worrying about whether they're doing things with their time that doesn't meet your grand vision for the universe. Yeah, that's a very selfish kind of attitude to have. And I see it a lot in this community. People tell me, you know, why don't you tell XYZ what they should be working on? It's like, what kind of extreme hubris? I'm not their boss. Not only am I not their boss. I'm not paying them. I'm not writing code. I I have no basis to express an opinion. If we start playing a kind of um, celebrity game where the loudest voice or the one with the most followers gets their opinion, I mean, that's a terrible way to to base decisions. Right. So, well, we see how that works out in our other institutions. Right. I think a lot of this has happened because people did not pause long enough to assume good faith and to remember that all of us who are in this for years are in it because we love Bitcoin. And there are plenty of people in the world who do not love Bitcoin. And there are quite a few who hate Bitcoin, viscerally. And we're helping them. And they could be in the middle middle of this trolling too, you know, and stirring up tensions and and being not good tone. and And we're helping them. And we're helping them because we're too busy setting up a circular firing squad instead of looking forward to the time when we will see crackdowns, we will see attempts for censorship, we will see uh, attacks against the core infrastructure. And instead of making our systems more robust and persuading people of, of the importance of financial freedom and privacy and joining together on the things that we all share in common as values, because we all share all of those things as values, we're allowing minor differences of doctrine, right? You know, which which are ridiculous to to tear us apart, uh, and that that's that's terrible because it's going to be exploited. Well, and we should also keep in mind, like you're going to rub shoulders with these people for a while, most likely. You know, like I've vehemently disagreed with several people in the community, but we still go out to have dinner. You know, we argue about the ideas, but personally, we're friends and. You know, we, we go out to dinner and we do business deals together and, and for and the all most types part, of stuff. I mean, you have to keep like you have to keep it professional. With you human, can disagree, you can even disagree very vehemently, but you know, keep it professional. You and you can still keep the personal relationships in place because that's the other thing that I think is really important is you know the people that you're friends with and that you can you know you can trust. You might disagree on a point, but you know you can still trust them because right. they've been around for a long time putting in blood, sweat, tears, money for years, you know, on all this stuff. You know, and let me give you a specific example. Yeah, can you give us a specific a very example? Specific exa- First of all, if you look at how the core developers behave in an environment where they're all sitting down and 
you know, away from the keyboards. I think most of the relationships are pretty warm and cordial and and respectful. They they appreciate each other's intellectual ability and and skills, and they respect the the contributions. Let me give you a very tangible example. Uh, we just spent ten minutes bashing Themos for his censorship in our Bitcoin, right? Uh, you know, having said that, I disagree with the actions. That doesn't mean I dislike Thamos or fail to recognize the enormous contributions he has brought oh, to the Bitcoin space huge, by creating huge. Bitcoin Talk, Bitcoin. by creating the, the Bitcoin, Bitcoin Wiki and Reddit. Uh, so we all owe a huge amount of thanks to, to Thamos, and I'll happily extend that, and I'm very respectful of that. That doesn't mean that I don't think the censorship is wrong. Totally wrong. Disagree with it entirely. But if I was meeting Thamos tomorrow, I'd buy him a beer first, say thank you for all of the work he's done, and then try to persuade him rationally why I think this is the wrong approach. There's no personal animosity, because even Thamos, who you know, at this point may, you know, be the big villain in the Reddit wars, etc. There's always a villain. We're all villains at oh, some point and, yeah. you know, we all get yeah, bashed for whatever reason. Exactly. <laughs> at the end of the day, you have to recognize that he loves Bitcoin. He's doing this because he really believes that this is the best thing for Bitcoin. Assume good faith and, and understand that misguided or what, we're all on the same side. And and it's easy to forget that. Yeah, I mean, I guess me personally, I kind of, I, I don't think he should be censoring the way he is but at the same time I can see the reasonableness on his side of the argument you know and I disagree with it but at the end of the day they're his properties he, he's got the keys to them and I do think that, that those property rights should be respected you know some people are like oh we need to have bitcoin.org put into a foundation and manage that way or oh we need to have reddit remove them as so a mod I, and it's listen, like I, I, would, I would I respect the property rights over one a person's time and effort and sweat, right? Your personal contribution, absolutely. Now, the name Bitcoin on Reddit doesn't belong to Thamos any more than the name Bitcoin on any platform belongs. But, but he registered I, it first. Yes, absolutely. I, I mean, I guess at the end of the day, it's owned by Reddit, but... That's up to Reddit, exactly. But uh, for me, that is very similar to a, to a broader argument of intellectual property. So name squatting, from my perspective, is a much weaker property right, if you want to put it that way. Well, name squatting, like, so a domain... Well, I mean, in, in, in this case, I mean, I, I nobody think, nobody owns Bitcoin, so yes, I mean, if somebody claim, owns Bitcoin.org, then famous is right, exactly. But but the problem is that that word, the word Bitcoin, doesn't belong uh, to that person. The domain may. So, well, yeah, but you can go buy the domain. Like, go offer Thamos 30 million bucks for it. He might yeah, take it. Sure. I mean, absolutely. Roger Bear bought Bitcoin.com. Mm-hmm. I mean, you want the domain? Go go buy it. Yeah, you know? I, I, <laughs> like, we'll, get, it, get it from him consensually. Yeah, we'll disagree on that. I think in, in, a, in an environment of artificial scarcity uh, and artificial competition, as is the naming system. Yeah, but it's I, like a piece of real estate. It's like a piece it's of not, land. It's not a piece of land. Yeah, and That's why I make distinctions between physical and intellectual property. I'm an open source guy all the way. Well, I accept. And, and I, I don't do you, think... How is this not like a piece of land? I mean, there's only one Bitcoin.org in terms of the DNS and ICANN system. Mm-hmm. Right, and I mean it's a it's a, rival, it's a rivalrous property. Yes, it's completely artificially rivalrous. Well, you, I mean, you could go create Bitcoin.bit right mm-hmm. on the Namecoin system. Like, go get that. 
Yeah, but I get. But then you're battling against the network effects that ICANN and 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 right. has with all of the. But I mean, that's not to say that it isn't still a rivalrous property. Yeah, that, I, that I just, can be scarce and owned. Right. Yeah, I just have uh, far less uh, respect for uh, property of that nature than I do for physical property or someone's labor. And that's just my personal opinion because I, I think it's a completely artificial construct of scarcity, the name specifically. Well, I'm trying to I'm trying to understand why you think that the like eBay.com. I mean, why shouldn't eBay.com own that? Well, in the case of eBay.com, eBay created the brand name eBay. In case in the case of uh, Reddit, our Bitcoin, Satoshi Nakamoto created the name Bitcoin, not famous. And so in yeah, but I think that Satoshi. I think Satoshi and Marty, uh, Sirius, I think they're the ones who who owned Bitcoin.org, and then Satoshi turned it over to Thamos. So, I mean, he can trace his, his property rights chain of title, you could say. Yeah. Back to Satoshi. Yeah. Not on Reddit, but yes, perhaps on Bitcoin.org. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I think it's um, not perhaps a good idea to have very important community resource managed by one person. Hey, then with so Satoshi screwed up wouldn't be the first yeah, time, right? Satoshi, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Satoshi. Um, so, uh, but it doesn't justify well, this may taking feel, it away. From well, this may famous. feel like a. Well, this may feel like a religion to many. Um, I don't believe in the deity of Satoshi Nakamoto or his infallibility any more than I believe in the infallibility of the Pope. Uh, but. And, and again, I'm not suggesting taking it away from Thamos. I'm, I'm suggesting recognizing the amount of power that comes from a very minor act of, of registering a, a community then, and then taking that forward to providing the power of censorship over an entire community. I think that's a, that's well, not a healthy situation. I don't situation. think he's got power over the entire community. I mean, if anything, it's generated a Streisand effect. Yeah. More. I mean, it's generated more, more conversation than a lot. Why are we talking about it? <laughs> right. Well, you brought it up. <laughs> yeah, I've just been kind of interested in in how this is all playing out. But I mean, this, you know, I mean, you got to also realize this is a community that is still maturing, and a lot of these things are going to be completely forgotten in the history. The the big block, small block size is going to be completely, oh, it's gonna be irrelevant. completely irrelevant. I was there on the internet when we were having major disagreements about. The, the structure of TCP or the structure of IPv6 or the, the, the role that uh, synchronous transfer mode will play in the network and, and, and also some epic, epic intellectual property battles between Richard M. Stallman and Eric Raymond. And, oh, my goodness. I bet know, that was something. Right? right? So um, does anybody who benefits now from open source technology and effectively the enormous value that open source has delivered to our society, do they care about the intellectual disagreements between RMS and ESR from back in the day? No. Only the, the people who were there and cared. So, you know, in the long run, none of this matters. Because the nice thing about innovation is that the history of innovation is a whitewashed history, always. Like, we, we, we capture only the glory days, uh, the resounding successes, and the failures, the hiccups, the disagreements, the mess. It's just water under the it's, it's It's forgotten because it's irrelevant to the final outcome. And so, you know, today, today, today we say, you know, Henry Ford, automotive industry, hero of the common man, you know, created assembly manufacturing and, and, and all of that. 
But if you look back at how Henry Ford was treated by his contemporaries in the media, he was brutalized. <laughs> yeah. Right? All of that, forgotten. Forgotten. Great American hero. Clap, clap, clap. So... You know, at the at the Scaling Bitcoin conference in Montreal, the the anthropologist she talked about like the importance of getting together in a room together as a community. You know, yes. having these conferences and conventions and I agree. knowing each other. You know, you've allocated a lot of your time and attention to traveling to conferences, participating in them. Obviously, you know, you agree. You 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 think it's important. Why do you think that's so important? Well, for one thing. Um, if you if you call someone a dick to their face, they might punch you. <laughs> or so, buy you a beer. <laughs> right. Uh, and so from a certain aspect of self-preservation, we all tend to be more civil, uh, more civilized, and uh, more understanding when we are in person. It's harder to misunderstand someone who's smiling at you. Yeah. Uh, on the internet, that nuance gets lost, and maybe in your head you're seeing a snarling face, right? And so it's... it's it, Nuance, emotional tone, body language, all of these things add to the conversation. And it's not that they add a fake element to the conversation. It's that the genuine respect and understanding and camaraderie of all of these people who are, we're all working on the same page. In a conference, we feel it. When you go on the mailing list and you strip everything and you leave it down to words, it's easy to forget that we like these people, that we respect their work, and that they're nice to us because we're barking at each other. And so it's not the conferences are better. It's that impersonal media where you drop all of the other signals of human communication and you leave it just down to the bare word, then you need to be very careful. You either have to very carefully proofread what you write, edit it, and make sure it conveys the tone perfectly. Um, if you then go to instantaneous communication and quick back and forth, you can get in a lot of trouble just because of basic misunderstanding. So the importance of conferences and face-to-face discussion, especially on contentious issues, is because it allows you to be human again and to recognize the humanity of the other person. Uh, and that biases you to respect their opinion and to uh, think about it a bit more carefully before you dismiss it. So I think that's really, really important. If you have a contentious issue, that's when you need the full spectrum communication. You need facial expression, you need tone, you need body language, you need words, not just words. Yeah, I think it, I, I'd heard uh, kind of an analogy that you know, Twitter is a certain amount of bandwidth and we increase in the amount of bandwidth that we're able to communicate. You know, we got phone call and email and like right. in person's the highest bandwidth. In it's terms pretty of, HD. Yeah, it's very HD in, the, in, the, in that sense. And so, yeah, I, I mean, I think it's very important because uh, and we also get that proximity. You know, even if we only see someone in person like once every six months or no, whatever, did. you know, it, yeah. it makes a difference besides having never met them and ever talked to them and just reading words on a screen. Like, right. you don't yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, listen, we, we've only been electronically communicating for a couple of decades. And the social norms, the etiquette are still in development. And so, yeah, I, I, I think these are very valuable, these conferences. So, you know, I've kind of been uh, asking a question of a lot of people lately, like, why do they hire Bitcoin? Like, because, you know, if we look at products or services as we're hiring them to do a particular job or task for us, like, what would you say is like, 
probably the first, second, maybe even third top reasons for why you hire Bitcoin? <laughs> the first one is that I'm a geek. And when I say I'm a geek, I want to emphasize that word. It's like capital G, <laughs> geek, right? Um, I, I love technology. I've loved technology since I was a small child. I got my first computer and just after 10 years old, 10 and a half years old, I learned how to program before I was 11. It's been a huge part of my life. And as a geek, I love elegant technology. So technology that has a certain elegance, and it's very difficult to describe what it means for technology to be elegant, but geeks understand what I'm saying when I say that. It, it has a certain beauty, a certain symmetry, just like a good piece of music. And you can't really describe why it's, it's melodious to you. But to me, I can look at a piece of code and it's melodious to me. It's, it, 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 it looks beautiful. And I look at the architecture of Bitcoin and to me, it's a beautiful thing. It's a, it's a piece of art. It's a human artifact, a, an outcome of our civilization, our culture that is beautiful in a technical sense. And... I chose Bitcoin first and foremost because it appealed to my sense of beauty as a software engineer, uh -huh. as a technologist, as someone who understands computer architecture, network architecture, distributed systems. I looked at that and I was, damn, that's elegant. It's brilliant. It, the pieces, they work together. It just all kind of comes together in the symphony. That's the best way I can describe it. So first and foremost, it's, it's purely aesthetic. So, so it, it gets you into flow. You yes. know, in, in Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi's book, Flow, uh, he talks about how some people even get so advanced in the use of their imagination that they can just read the music. They don't, they, and they get more flow out of it than even attending a concert where they hear it. You right. know, because they're doing it all inside their own head. Well, so, and so reading, reading so the Satoshi paper, I... In, in my head, it unfolded into a grand vision of how finance was going to be disrupted. And you're connecting all in these decades. dots, and you're like, and holy yes, cow. Exactly. You see the future. So, one is that. One is the aesthetic value of the technology itself. The second one is, has to do with my personality and the fact that I'm driven by principles of um, social justice, equality, and freedom. And so from that perspective, when I look at Bitcoin and I look at the broken systems we have in the world, Bitcoin is an elegant solution that gets us closer to individual empowerment, freedom, equality. It doesn't care if you're black, white, uh, if you're young, old, if you're gay, straight, if you're authorized or unauthorized, Republican or Democrat. It, it, do you have a properly validating digital signature? That core neutrality creates a system that, that, that appeals to my egalitarian um, becomes equal to one attitude. All. Right. All are equal under Bitcoin. Just like a gold coin doesn't care whose its master is. It's right. gold to everybody. Exactly. So when I compare that to the financial systems we have, which are the exact antithesis of that, from a very practical perspective, I see Bitcoin and I say, this is an aesthetically elegant technology that is also one that is likely to push the world towards the direction that I think is good, that helps billions of people potentially. And, you know, I think the, the, the third reason was that once those two things fell in place and I started using Bitcoin, the moment you start using Bitcoin, and not just using it casually, but using it in a serious way, it becomes part of your income, it becomes part of your expenses, it becomes part of your monthly budgeting, you're using Bitcoin as a day-to-day -day currency, 
you go and interact with a traditional banking system and it feels disgusting. It, it feels like you, you, having to send like, a fax machine in the era of the internet. It's like it reading a newspaper like, and having all this ink on your fingers when you're done. It's just Right, gross. exactly. It's, it's, it's like a throwback to, to an era that didn't work anyway and I would like to move on from. So as soon as I'm steeped in Bitcoin, the banking system becomes abhorrently ridiculous to me. It's, it's disgusting, it's dirty, it's boring, it's slow, it's ridiculous, costly. it's arbitrary, it's costly, it's capricious, and I have to deal with bankers, which I hated before and I hate even more now. And so through all of those things, you know, you get hooked. And, and honestly, I know a lot of people who are in Bitcoin who've gone through the same journey, like uh, epiphany, deep dive, losing yourself, reading as much as you can getting into the community and then just never turning back. And once you've done that, you know, the traditional systems of money seem so ridiculously antiquated, which is great because that creates a really interesting generational effect. Yeah, because we have now six year olds. Yeah, I mean, I had who a... have never lived in a world where Bitcoin didn't exist. Uh-huh. As that generation grows up, I, I would love to be there when they turn 16 and they go to a bank to open a bank account. I would like to be in to on that. What? I want to be in on that conversation. <laughs> They've been using Bitcoin for 10 years and the banker is trying to explain to them why they need to pay $5 a month for the privilege of holding their own money and, and what three to five business days is. Uh, and just sit back and laugh at that because they have as much chance of selling them a bank account as they do of persuading them to use a fax machine or, uh, or, or a threshing machine or uh, to persuade them to uh, weave their own clothes or wash their clothes by the riverside with a rock. So that's the scenario. From a generational perspective, we're creating a generation now that, that will arrive at banking after experience Bitcoin and will be presented with the horror like of you banking want me to do what? and go running <laughs> in the opposite direction. <laughs> and the funny thing is, that in most countries in the world, you cannot legally open a bank account until you're 16. Some countries, 18. Oh, Some countries, yeah. 18 and male. Right? <laughs> and all of the people who are not part of that, from ages as young as five or six maybe, are going to start using Bitcoin. And that's going to be a complete generational change. Just like growing up with a generation that had smartphones and internet is transformational. Not yeah. just for that generation, but for the internet as it feeds back. Yeah, it's I mean, going to be transformational for Bitcoin. You're talking about people disenfranchised from the current banking system. And I mean, the regulators like to talk about, uh, you know, the illicit actors. But really, it's like, well, I mean, you can't have a digital lemonade stand. No, you can't. And how do you get a merchant account? How you, do, you, how do you, you get a bank you account? You can't. I mean, I, and I added. But in, today we have the problem of the unbanked. But that's oh, going to change. Too. Yeah. That's going to change because tomorrow the banks are going to have the problem of the debanked. The debanked. And also the pre-banked. Yeah. The pre-banked, the ones who never had banking, never want banking and will quite happily bypass that nasty era of humanity. And the ones who are debanked, the ones who are cutting the cord, just like people are turning off TVs and turning on Netflix today and becoming de-televised. We're going to have a lot of people who are going to become debanked. So it's not about banking the unbanked. It's about debanking the rest and of us. Cl closing the loop, right? Yeah. Like closing the loop and just doing everything in Bitcoin if you can or Absolutely. as much as possible. And, and for a generation, that's going to make a lot of sense because, you know, quite honestly, while Internet money seems weird 
to some people, especially uh, at a certain age. And unfortunately, I don't want to sound ageist, but age does play a, a role here. Internet money makes perfect sense to a certain generation yeah, exactly. for whom traditional money seems absurd. Yeah. You know, it's uh, been a fascinating discussion. I think we need to go get some tacos, though. So any any last comment you want to make to uh, to the audience here? I mean, I've just okay, been so the, grateful that you stepped in and started, like, really talking about this publicly. You know, I'm, I'm really grateful that you've you've gotten in involved in the fight and like moving everything forward. And I think you've done a tremendous service for the ecosystem as a whole. Thank you. Um, um, everything I say is stuff that I really believe in. So it's, it's easy for me to do this because all I'm doing is me. I think my final comment is, is this, the, the green stuff they put in the tacos, it looks like guacamole. It's guacamole with a lot of jalapenos in. So if you think that's going to temper the spiciness, you're going, you're in for a big surprise. So that's my final <laughs> piece I of love, advice here. I love the spicy. <laughs> it's it's not guacamole. It's it's a jalapeno. It's jalapenos, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's terrifying. <laughs> oh, I love it. I don't I don't find it scary at all. Anyways, uh, we've had the legendary uh, Andreas Antonopoulos. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Uh, thank you. You honor me, and I, I appreciate it a lot. Thank you. Be sure to get a copy of the free Bitcoin guide at freebitcoinguide.com. Got a question or suggestion? Record your voice at bitcoin.kn. Don't be shy. To help the show, share bitcoin.kn with friends, post about it on Reddit, and otherwise spam the interwebs. Your iTunes comments and five-star reviews are very important to us. Please continue tuning in to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast, where we release interviews with the top people in the Bitcoin world. Now take some choline and let that Bitcoin knowledge consolidate. Consolidate.